Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa of the year 1212, Part 5 of 5. During the second half of the 12th century, the Christian kingdoms had made little progress in the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Mostly they had fought against each other and were often willing to ally with the Almohads, a Muslim dynasty from North Africa, if it gained them short-term advantage. Such policies infuriated the popes in Rome, who repeatedly attempted to get the Christians to join forces to combat the common Muslim enemy, most often with little success. In the year 1210, however, the stakes were higher than before. The Caliph of the Almohads, Al-Nasir, also known by the Spanish as Mira Mamelin, having consolidated his power in North Africa, was gathering his forces for a major military campaign in Spain, with the firm intention of erasing all Christian realms from the peninsula. The kings of Spain who were to take part in the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa were Alfonso VIII of Castile, Sancho VII of Navarra, and Pedro II of Aragon. Alfonso IX of Leon, however, despite the grave threat from the Almohads, was still unwilling to join forces with his fellow Christians. The Muslim-Christian conflict in Spain reignited in 1210, when the Almohads attacked Barcelona. Pedro II of Aragon turned back the offensive and responded by seizing territory in the Muslim kingdom of Valencia. Alfonso VIII of Castile was reluctant to come to the assistance of Pedro because he had signed a truce with the Almohads. Aware of this, Pope Innocent looked for an alternative solution, some way of not breaking the word of the truce directly. He suggested that Alfonso would not personally need to take up arms, but encouraged him not to prevent his vassals from doing so. The Castilian nobles Alfonso Teles and Rodrigo Rodriguez promptly launched attacks across the border into Muslim territory. In response, the Muslim governor of Jaén wrote to Alfonso, asking him if the truce was now invalid, because if it was, he would have to inform his caliph. Christian attacks became more open and blatant in December 1210, when Innocent wrote to all bishops and archbishops in Spain, encouraging their leaders to join battle against the infidels, and to confer indulgences to all who did so. Those letters made it clear to both Alfonso VIII and Caliph al Nasir that the phony war was over. The Caliph gathered his troops together in Morocco and prepared to launch an invasion into Spain. 
he crossed the straits at the head of an immense army in May 1211. After reaching Cordova, he marched northwards along the same road which had led his father to victory at Alacos in 1195. In July, he stopped to besiege the castle of Salvatierra, the base of the Knights of Calatrava, since the loss of the town of Calatrava itself in 1195. Set in the heart of a region held by the Muslims, Salvatierra was a symbol of Castilian resistance against the Muslims. For 55 days, the Knights bravely defended the castle, but eventually had to surrender. The loss of Salvatierra was a grave blow for Castile, but the bravery of the knights had won their king a valuable time. Alanasir, since it was the end of summer, decided to end his campaigning for the year and return to Cordova. By now it became clear that it would be folly not to unite against the Almohad invasion, as the loss of Salvatierra left wide open the door to invasion from the Moors. The kings of Aragon and Navarra pledged their assistance to Castile, but Alfonso IX of Leon made his cooperation dependent upon the restoration of border fortresses held by Alfonso VIII. While the others were preparing for the coming crusade, he attacked Portugal, exploiting the death of its king, Sancho I, in May 1211. However, despite the preoccupations of the kings of Leon and Portugal, many of their subjects did take part in the crusade against the Almohads. During the winter months, all Castile was busy preparing for the assault that was sure to come in the spring. The loss of the fortress of Salvatierra provoked a strong reaction, not only in Christian Spain, but throughout Western Europe. Until now, Pope Innocent III, burnt by his earlier experience of the Fourth Crusade, had so far been reluctant to make the full call for a full-scale crusade. But now, realising how critical the situation was, he urged knights throughout Christendom to take up arms and come to the aid of their fellow Christians in Spain. Documents of the time tell us that the people of Rome fasted on bread and water for three days, from the 20th of May, 1212. On Wednesday, the 23rd of May, after the city's church bells had rung for several hours, the Roman clergy formed a procession through the city, while at the same time a separate procession of barefoot women made their way through the Rome's church of Santa Maria to St John's Lateran Basilica. At the Basilica, a huge crowd congregated to listen to a sermon from the Pope who described what was happening in Spain and asked the audience to pray for the success of the crusade. In the summer of 1212, thousands of Christian warriors made their way to Castile. Italians, Lombards, Bretons, Germans and others. Many travelled from Provence, led by the Archbishop of Narbonne. They were joined by the bishops of Bordeaux and Nantes. The exact numbers are not known. José Javier Spada estimates at perhaps 30,000. In Toledo, the combined forces from the north, along with the armies of Castile and Aragon, marched southwards. The foreign crusaders seized the castle of Malagon, south of Toledo, on the 24th of June, and slaughtered the garrison. Next they reached Calatrava, whose mayor surrendered on the 1st of July, after a brief siege. Alfonso VIII allowed the defenders to leave and restored the fortress to the order of Calatrava. 
The foreign crusaders complained bitterly about the heat, the lack of booty and the king's refusal to allow them to sack Calatrava. Except for a few knights from the Provence, all abandoned the crusade and returned home, having achieved very little. It was left to the Spanish and Portuguese to continue the campaign by themselves. As the Castilians and Aragonese resumed their march, they were joined by Sancho VII of Navarra. Now they numbered together perhaps 70,000 in total. With little difficulty, the army seized Alacos, Pierre de la Buena, Benevente and Caracuel, but bypassed Salvatierra rather than get bogged down in a protracted siege. On the 13th of July, the Christians arrived at a massive gorge called the Despeñaperos in the Sierra Morena. Today this mountain range is a natural park known primarily for its geology and landscape and also for its notable flora and fauna. Historically, it has often had military importance since it separates the central part of Spain from the south of the peninsula. And it is here where the key battle of Las Navas de Tolosa would take place. The Caliph al-Nasir arrived before the Christians but had decided not to cross the Sierra Morena in order to stay close to his base in Al-Andalus. He ranged his troops, who were perhaps a hundred thousand in strength, around the gorge of Despeñaperos, in order to block the advance of the Christians, who he hoped would be tired by the time they arrived. For two days, as they prepared for the final battle, the united armies of Christian Spain and the Almohads faced each other off. The most obvious route for Alfonso VIII to take was through a mountain pass called La Losa but the king was extremely wary not to fall into a trap. The story goes that he was approached by a local shepherd who knew the area well and told the king of a little-known pass that the Muslims had left unguarded. Today this pass is known as Puerto del Rey, or Gate of the King. Trusting the shepherd, Alfonso led his army through the pass and surprised the Muslim army on the 16th of July. When the battle began, the Count of Najera, Diego López de Haro, commanded the centre of the Christian army, with Sancho VII of Navarra on his right and Pedro II of Aragon on his left, while Alfonso VIII and the military orders held the rear. The Muslim army was without heavy cavalry, but was significantly larger. They attacked the Christian flanks, while banks of archers fired arrows into the enemy front lines to try and break them up. Alfonso ordered reinforcements to the flanks to prevent his troops from being enveloped. The key for the Christians was for their cavalry to reach the enemy lines intact. At Alocos, the Muslims had succeeded in breaking up this attack, then exploited the disruption and chaos in the enemy ranks and routed them. At Las Navas de Tolosa, the Christians reached the Muslim front lines, who were composed mainly of volunteers, ready to die in service of jihad. It was at this moment when Al-Nasir ordered forward his elite troops, the veteran Almohad soldiers, who at first were able to successfully push back the enemy. However, the main bulk of the Christian army bravely stood their ground, despite waves of attack from Almohad foot soldiers and a heavy shower of arrows from the enemy archers. 
Alfonso VIII rushed forward with his elite guard, calling to his friend, the Archbishop of Toledo, Jimenez Dorada, the famous words, quote, Archbishop, you and I, we die here, end quote. Thanks to the king's bravery, the offensive worked and succeeded in breaking up the enemy lines. Meanwhile, on the right flank, Sancho VII was able to push forward. He approached the tent of the caliph, which, according to legend, was protected by a circuit of negro slaves chained to one another. Sancho broke through the chains, which henceforth became a symbol of the Navarrese coat of arms. Andalusia fled the battlefield, and his army fell into disarray and were annihilated. The Christians pursued them until sunset and collected a huge amount of booty. The tapestry covering the entrance to the caliph's tent was sent as a war trophy to the monastery of Las Huelgas, near Burgos, where it still hangs in testimony of the victory. During the next few days, the Crusaders occupied several castles. However, they were unable to immediately build on their victory due to an outbreak of pestilence. Combined with severe winters and droughts in the next two years, the Christians were unable to immediately launch a new offensive against the weakened Almohads. al returned to Morocco in disgrace. He agreed to relinquish his throne to his ten-year-old son, but in any case was found dead soon after, a broken man, disgraced by defeat in battle against the infidel. The Almohads passed through a period of regency with a young caliph and with power exercised by leading nobles. They were careful to negotiate a series of truces with the Christian kingdoms, which remained more or less in place for the next 15 years. When the young caliph died, heirless, the Almohad nobles fought among each other for the title. Over the next years, their empire broke up in the face of local rebellions, and a rival dynasty called the Marinids eventually took their place. In Spain, the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa tipped the balance of power decisively in favour of the Christians against the Muslims. Joseph O'Callaghan, in his book A History of Medieval Spain, calls the victory at Las Navas de Tolosa the greatest achieved in the course of the reconquest, and made it possible to subjugate the greater part of Al-Andalus in the next 40 years. The Spanish historian Francisco Garcia Fritz, in his book Las Navas de Tolosa, investigates whether or not the battle can be considered as decisive. In his conclusion, Fritz writes that the battle of Las Navas de Tolosa met some criteria for being described as a decisive battle. He says that the political and military situation in Spain before and after July 1212 was very different. Beforehand, the balance of power between Muslims and Christians could have swung either way. Afterwards, it became inevitable that the Christians had the upper hand would come to dominate the peninsula. But Fritz argues that this was because of underlying reasons that would have caused the same result in the end, regardless of how the battle played out. He argues that Las Navas de Tolosa is one of history's battles that has become a symbol to mark a turning point in the relations between two or more powers. Such markers, he claims, might help us understand complex historical changes and processes, but they falsify historical reality by virtue of the fact that they simplify them. 
On the other hand, I believe that the boost in morale a victory provides often becomes at least as important as the more practical consequences of the battle. For this reason, it is possible to argue that certain European battles are more decisive than it is fashionable among academic circles to admit. Especially in medieval times, the character of individual rulers or outcomes of important events had a real effect on the flow of history. In the end, to be able to make a decision on the significance of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, it is essential to know what occurred afterwards. In a future podcast, I will continue with the history of Spain and the gaining of all the peninsula by Christian powers. But for now, the focus of the podcast will turn back to France and the Battle of Bouvan of 1214 between King Philip Augustus of France and the armies of King John of England and the Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV. If you enjoyed the podcast, I invite you to subscribe on iTunes, or ideally even to give us a review. Also, you can visit the podcast's Facebook site, facebook.com stroke History or find the blog on www.historyeurope.net for maps, images and more information on the subjects covered. Since the last couple of episodes, I am releasing each episode at exactly 3pm UK time on Fridays, so that you know when to expect the next episode. In between the collection of episodes for each battle, I will leave a gap of two weeks. So I hope you can join me again in three weeks' time, when it will be time to catch up with King John of England and King Philip Augustus of France. Until then... Thank you for listening, and goodbye.